the volume. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Superchargers, headlights, and more with over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love Love at at First first listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Boxing with Chris Mannix is brought to you by FanDuel. It's never been easier to play fantasy on FanDuel. Whether you love basketball, golf, soccer, or any other fantasy sport, there is a contest for every fan. FanDuel, more ways to win. This is Boxing with Chris Mannix. Oh, somebody punch him in the face. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back. It's another episode of Boxing with Chris Mannix, part of the Volume Sports Podcast Network. We are loaded up on the show today. We begin with Keith Idek, senior writer over at BoxingScene.com. An incredible amount of news in boxing over the last week or so. You've got Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder being canceled and then rescheduled. A massive fight between Jamel Charlo and Brian Castaño on Saturday on Showtime. And Canelo Alvarez, who's he going to fight? We're coming down to the wire with Canelo. A little bit later on, Jamel Charlo himself. He is going to join the show and talk to us about this big fight with Brian Castaño. Charlo has a chance to become the first junior middleweight to be undisputed champion in the four-belt era. I get into it with him about that and so many other things as well. Finally, Tyron Woodley, the ex-UFC welterweight champion, he is going to get into boxing in August when he takes on Jake Paul. I've got some skepticism about MMA guys coming over to boxing. I talked to Woodley about that and much more. As always, best way to support this podcast, get over to Apple Podcasts, Post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we do this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to the show. All right, Keith Idek is back, BoxingScene.com. He is in San Antonio for one of the biggest fights of the summer. The best fight on the Showtime summer calendar. That is Jermel Charlo. Brian Castaño, 154-pound unification fight. Uh, just a terrific action matchup, meaningful matchup. Uh, Keith, I know you're, you are you got to be pretty excited to be down there for that. I mean, that's got to get your blood going a little bit. It's a really good fight, Chris, and it's going to determine only the sixth fully unified champion in any division during the four-belt era. So it's a pretty uncommon 
currents and uh, and it's a very good fight you know both got Charlo you could argue should be undefeated because a lot of people think that he did enough to beat Tony Harrison in that fight but came back to avenge it by knocking out Harrison and Castaño is undefeated so I mean you have two top level guys all the titles on the line um, it's a very very good fight it's not a pay-per-view level fight just because there aren't a lot of people who know Brian Castaño outside of boxing um, but it's a it's an excellent fight and uh, and boxing fans, especially hardcore boxing fans, should very much be looking forward to it. All right, so I want to get into that, and I want to get into Canelo, the latest there, Caleb Plant, Dimitri Bivol in the mix for Canelo's next fight. Uh, Gennady Golovkin, what is going on with him? And I'm going to finish with Tim Zhu and get your thoughts on this rising 154-pounder with the famous last name. But let's start with the breaking news of last week, Keith, and that is... Tyson Fury testing positive for COVID-19. Some version of COVID made its way through Tyson Fury's camp. Multiple people in that camp contracting COVID. The fight that was scheduled for July 24th was scrapped. The new date is October 9th. Uh, I guess start there, Keith. I mean, my first reaction was, why the hell wasn't Tyson Fury vaccinated? I mean, the guy has been gallivanting around the country for the better part of the last few months, he's in Florida, he's in Texas, he's in Las Vegas. Like, why, with so much money at stake, was this guy not vaccinated? And it wasn't because he's got some fundamental issue with vaccination. He had one shot. So he clearly is okay with getting vaccinated. This is the second time this summer when you throw in Teofimo Lopez that we've got a major fight that is postponed because a fighter contracts COVID that may not have been at risk for contracting COVID if they had been vaccinated. So give me your reaction to, to everything that's unfolded over the last week with Wilder Fury. You know, it's interesting, Chris, in that the day of the press conference in Los Angeles where they officially announced the Fury-Wilder third fight, Bob Arum said, he told a small group of reporters after the press conference that Wilder was fully vaccinated according to what Shelley Finkel told him and that Fury was fully vaccinated. So obviously I did ask Bob about this. I said, hey, Bob, you know, you've been on record as saying that he was fully vaccinated and clearly he was not. So what happened there? Was there miscommunication? Were you led to believe that he was fully vaccinated? The answer that Bob gave me was that he was under the impression that he got the Johnson and Johnson shot, which of course is a one shot deal. Um, but he actually got the Moderna shot, the first Moderna shot and did not get the second shot. Of course, I asked Bob why he didn't get the second shot. He said that the way Fury explained it to him was be now you're supposed to get the shots about a month apart. I don't know the date when he got the first Moderna shot, but he was already in camp for the July 24th date. And he did not want to have an adverse reaction to the second shot and have to miss some of training camp. Whether you believe that, whether that's actually what happened, who knows? But that is what Bob Aaron told me the other day. That's his understanding of it. You know, Bob, look, people are going to say Bob's lying about this. I don't know the real answer, um, but that is what Bob said to me. I believe it was Monday we spoke about it. And he did bring up an interesting point, though. Of course, you're better protected against COVID if you're fully vaccinated, but you can still get it. And I speak from experience, recent experience, in that my younger brother, fully vaccinated, yet tested positive for COVID almost two weeks ago. And 
while it was not life-threatening and he was not hospitalized, thankfully, he did suffer some symptoms. He was, you know, he had headaches and he lost his sense of taste and smell, which he has still not gotten fully back in the, in the two weeks since he tested positive. And he was in bed for a few days. So even if you're fully vaccinated and you catch COVID, you, you could be sick. And in the case of Tyson Fury, if he tested positive for COVID 10 or 11 days ago and had to stop training for four or five days, they probably would have postponed the fight anyway. So that's kind of Bob Arum's point. Of course, he's, you know, they're trying to, you know, to, to put a best case scenario on what happened for, from their standpoint, um, that it would have been postponed anyway, even if he was fully vaccinated, because who really knows? I mean, it's a, we can't really say one way or the other if that would have been the case, but it's certainly possible that it would have been postponed regardless. Um, but, you know, they should have been much more careful. They were allowing more people into the camp than they should have. They were not testing people. Uh, a lot of people, according to what Bob told me, as many as nine or 10 people in the camp tested positive, including F.A. Ajagba, who was supposed to fight Frank Sanchez on the undercard or still will fight Frank Sanchez in what's a really intriguing heavyweight fight on the undercard October 9th. F.A. Ajagba, the Nigerian heavyweight, was actually hospitalized for a day. So, you know, uh, Andy Lee, his co-trainer, I believe, tested positive. His chef tested positive, Isaac Lowe. You know, I'm sure you've heard a lot of this yourself, Chris. Um, so it ran through the camp pretty good. They should have been much more careful. Hopefully they will be once they reconvene in August here because Tyson Fury is going to go back to England for a couple of weeks and then return to Las Vegas to resume training for the October 9th fight. Now, the way Bob Arum explained this to me, and again, you have to preface this by saying he said he was fully vaccinated a month ago, is that he said if he's not fully vaccinated, they can't move forward with the fight. I don't know what assurances that PBC and Wilder's team have received that they'll have documentation that he's fully vaccinated, but supposedly that is required of him to move forward with this October 9th fight. Uh, he should get it immediately when he's over you in the think. UK. As soon as, as, soon as he is uh, physically well enough to get it, which sounds like he's right there at this point, um, you should get it. And by the way, there's no medical reasons not to get the vaccine shortly after you have had COVID. I know of NBA players that have done it to be perfectly honest and to relate it to something in my own life. I mean, I had COVID in the early part of this year and within a couple of months I got the vaccine. So, you know, if you're Tyson Fury, if nothing else, do that immediately. My, my first two reactions were one, like, I, I guess I can understand like not wanting to have an adverse reaction this late in your training camp. I know one of the top U.S. Olympic swimmers expressed something similar as he was getting ready, as, you know, in recent days, as he's getting ready for the Tokyo Olympics. But Tyson Fury has been in the U.S. for months now. Like this could have been done yeah. in May in Texas when he was at the Billy Joe Saunders fight. It could have been done in Nevada. It could have been done at that press conference when he was in California. There's any number of times he could have been proactive about getting the vaccine. That's number one. Number two, and you touched on this, like maybe it would have happened anyway, but why are you letting so many people into your camp? And are there any kind of protocols in place for allowing these people into camp? For example, you know, I was asking around about Pacquiao because that's the next big thing, right? Like, you don't want Pacquiao Errol Spence to wind up catching COVID and having another mega fight taken off the calendar. 
Uh, and one thing I was told about Pacquiao's camp is that there are is daily testing going on at Wildcard. You are not allowed in Pacquiao's part of the gym unless you go through a rapid COVID test. Why was that not in place for Tyson Fury? There's enough money that's out there. That, that shouldn't be an issue. I, I yeah. find that part to be particularly mind-blowing. And by the way, Keith, I don't know about you, I still haven't really gotten a clear answer if Pacquiao's vaccinated. I, I got the answer about the testing. I don't really know if Pacquiao is fully vaccinated at this point. Well, you know, Chris, I was told the same thing about the testing uh, for Pacquiao's camp. They have a testing, like a mini testing center set up downstairs from the wild card where you have to take a rapid test and you obviously must pass before you are allowed upstairs to watch Manny train or to interview him and, and or Freddie Roach or whatever, uh, which is a good idea. And then, of course, the people on social media you know, are making valid points that Manny is out and about among a lot of people who many of whom you don't know whether they're vaccinated or not. It's not like if you see someone on the street and they want to give you a hug or want an autograph or whatever, you ask them for their vaccination card or whatever. Um, now, of course, if he's fully vaccinated, that uh, minimizes risk for him, of course. I, I've been told that Manny Pacquiao is fully vaccinated. But again, we're just taking the word of people yeah. who think they know what's happening. And again, maybe in the case of Bob Arum, he had the best of intentions because you would think that Aram and top rank would have pushed Tyson Fury to get fully vaccinated because there's so much money on the line, not only for the Wilder fight, there was a lot more money on the line even before that when they thought he was going to fight Anthony Joshua. So it speaks to your point, Chris, why didn't he get fully vaccinated in April or May or, or March or whatever, when you thought that you had an opportunity to make over a hundred million dollars to, to fight Anthony Joshua, you wouldn't want to blow that payday by just being reckless and having people come into your camp and everything. It, frankly, it's idiotic. I mean, there's no real defense. It's it's moronic. They, I don't know why there's so much money at stake and you don't know a million things could happen, right? I mean, they could go back into camp and, you know, Deontay Wilder could suffer an injury or Tyson Fury could suffer an injury. And then it just keeps going. It keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. I mean, this seems like a way that they could have ensured that they fought July 24th and then, you know, from Tyson Fury's perspective, hopefully he wins the fight, remains in position to fight Anthony Joshua if Joshua beats Alexander Usyk. It's, it's just foolish. And, and I don't know how many guys are going to have to go through it and blow huge paydays. Tiafimo Lopez, uh, who, who's now his fight is sort of in limbo because you don't know when it's going to happen, if it's going to happen on the Triller platform the way that it's been going here. I mean, it just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back to different cards. It's obviously not happening, happening August 14th. So, look. I don't get it. I, I just don't. And honestly, there should be paperwork in place uh, that forces these guys to do it because they say, you know, you hear this in the outside world, outside of boxing, where there's, of course, a lot less money at stake for just regular people showing up to their jobs every day. Oh, your job can't force you to get a vaccine. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's a you know complicated legal issue. But in the case of, of putting money at your own money at risk, in the case of Bob Arum, Al Heyman, you know, before you're going into a pay-per-view event like this, they do have the right to require you to do that because there's so much risk involved for them. So you would think that people would be smarter about this than they've been, but here we are. Yeah, it's crazy. And, you know, for boxers, it's especially bad because with boxers, there's actual lost revenue. Like if you catch COVID in the NBA, your paychecks still come every couple of weeks or every month. If you're a boxer, 
that paycheck doesn't come. And to your point, there's no guarantee that the paycheck is going to come once again. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I feel like these guys moving forward, and you're right, whether it's top rank, Eddie Hearn, PBC, you've got to start mandating in these contracts that these guys uh, are vaccinated before they agree to any type of fight. All right, let's talk about Canelo for a second here because Eddie Hearn was on with Akin Barak on the DAZN Boxing Show this week, and he said this about uh, Canelo's decision for his next fight. No, that's that's what is you know that's what they would prefer. They would prefer to do a free fight deal. Obviously, you know the average. This is their opportunity to try and you know allure him to the network, if you like, via a Caleb Plant fight. But I feel like I feel like Caleb Plant shouldn't be a pawn in this. Caleb Plant is a guy that just get should get the best deal and the best opportunity for this fight. Um, but unfortunately, that's boxing. But we'll see where it goes. And, and like I said, this week is the crunch week. We have to make a decision this week. September, the most likely, if it's 18, you know, is, is upon us. And we have two or three other fights ready to go. You know, we could we could abort Caleb Plant and we could announce tomorrow. So, Keith, you've been reporting on this for the better part of the last couple of weeks. Where do you think we stand with Canelo Alvarez and his next fight? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an important week, as Eddie Hearn said, because they're sort of running out of time to properly promote a September 18th fight. you got to get to the point where, you know, you can have a press conference and send these guys into the real heart of their training camps and then come to Vegas so we can, you know, six days in advance and promote the fight for fight week. You're running out of time here. That's basically what this is about. So, look, you know, there's, they're apart on the money. It's, it's like virtually everything else in boxing and in every walk of life, it's about money. And, and Caleb Plant wants more money than he's been offered so far. If Canelo Alvarez really wants this fight as badly as he says that he wants it, and he has made it crystal clear, I think, that this is the only fight that he wants next because he wants to become the fully unified champion in that division. That's why he took the Billy Joe Saunders fight, the Callum Smith fight. You know, he, he kind of put himself in a vulnerable negotiating position by being so vocal about wanting this fight and only this fight next that Caleb Plant has some leverage here because he has the IBF title that he wants and look you'll pay me I don't think you know he's not asking for five million dollars over market value but they're a part on the money and to, to some degree you could look at maybe blaming Caleb Plant a little bit too because he's being offered an enormous sum of money money that it would require him to fight three, four times maybe to make if, he, if he's going to have to, you know, try to account for that money. And do you want the tough fights, right? I mean, look, if they were lowballing Caleb Plant, trying to pay him $4 million for a fight that, he's know, that he knows is worth more than double that, I could see it, but that's not what's happening here. So look, his resume is thin. There's no two ways about it. Just, there's just no, I mean, he has fought he, he looked good in the Uskategai fight, right? I mean, he, he won the title, faded a little bit toward the end of the fight, but it was a good win for him. And since then, look what he's done, right? So I don't know if it, I hope that he wants the fight. I, I, don't, I don't have any reason to believe that he doesn't, but if he turns down this kind of money to go try to fight other guys, well, you'd certainly have to question if he really wants to fight elite level fighters because he's being offered a lot of money here. And I'm not saying he should, he should squeeze as much out of it as he possibly can. No one should feel sorry for Canelo Alvarez. He's made 
more money than he could than you know his grandchildren could spend probably so you know if he's got to give a little yeah he's got to give a little i mean you want this fight to show how much you want it so i kind of see it from both sides but i'd be very disappointed after all of this if caleb plant wound up walking away from these negotiations and then goes and makes I don't know. I, well, he's, he's already made two mandatory defenses, so I, I can't imagine there's another mandatory defense to make because they counted the Caleb Truax fight. Even though Caleb Truax pulled out of the eliminator two days before or a day before and never actually went through with it, I get that Caleb Truax is a former IBF champion, but they counted that as his mandatory. So he does not have a mandatory due. And based on the previous matchmaking for Caleb Plant, I would kind of hate to see what kind of optional defense he's going to make if he doesn't fight Canelo Alvarez on September 18th. It's got to be, he'd be the first one to ever knock on the door of Daryl Peoples at the IBF, be like, hey man, you got a third mandatory for me to take care of at this point? Because <laughs> yeah, I'm ready and available. <laughs> I'm ready to go. Because, um, because Chris, seriously, I'm just to pick your brain for a second, like what's, the Benavidez fight is not happening next. So it's not like he's going to, and and frankly, that's a dangerous fight for significantly less money. It's a it's a good fight, and I think people will be very interested in it. People love to see Plant fight Benavides. But if you're Plant, why wouldn't you fight Canelo Alvarez in a really dangerous fight with all the titles at stake and make a lot more money? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to to do it to to fight Benavides instead. It doesn't make any sense. And my hope is that Caleb Plant is just pushing this as far as he can push it. And then when Canelo is going ready to walk away, Caleb Plant says, all right, that last offer, I'll take it. Uh, You know, it's kind of funny. You mentioned like they're not offering him $4 million. And I understand what you're saying. That's a low number for a Canelo fight. But like how many people are watching that fight for Caleb Plant? Like he is, his currency is that trinket around his waist, that IBF belt that he has. That has put him in this position. All credit to him. Like it was well-played. You kept that belt. You kind of knew Canelo was gonna, I was gonna gun for it. So you put yourself in a position to keep it. You're off since January, but this is his moment, and I don't think this moment is going to come around again. I don't expect Canelo if he goes in a different direction in September, just turn around and be like, all right, let's do this all over again with mm-hmm. Caleb Plant in December. I, I just, I'm just, I'm just not seeing it there. So my hope is that this is gamesmanship negotiating and that the final offer that's on the table for Caleb Plant, be it $7 million, $8 million, it's going to be a huge number. I mean, it's going to be a career-high payday by a mile. And you're right, it would take him three or four fights probably to get to that number on its own, putting aside the legacy that's involved with potentially beating a Canelo Alvarez. My hope is that he's. this is just a part of all that. But let's say, Keith, let's say it does fall apart, you know, Mike Coppinger over at ESPN suggested Dimitri Bivol. I've heard the same thing. That's an easy fight to make. Eddie Hearn works with Dimitri Bivol. Bivol has a title at 175. He's not big. He's skilled, but he's not big, so it's not like he's going to be a physically imposing fighter uh, in the ring against Canelo. Do you expect that to be the fallback, or do you think they'd look in a different direction? It's hard to say, Chris. I wonder, you know, because... In the past, Dimitri Bivol has re- said repeatedly that he would go down to 168 to fight Canelo because he's not a big 75-pounder. Um, and Canelo has already won a light heavyweight title. So if, if he's going to come down to 68, I mean, it's, 
it's no lesser of a fight from an ability standpoint than Caleb Plant, right? I mean, I would, of course, favor Canelo Alvarez to win, as I would against pretty much anyone else he would fight. Um, but it's not a lesser, you know, he's not going to become the unified champion if he takes that fight. But I think there would be interest in the fight. Um, so, it, you know, and it would be cheaper. You know, it's certainly, he, Dimitri Bivol would take the fight for a lot less money than Caleb Plant. He'd take the $4 million. He'd take yeah, the $4 he's, million. The, he's balking at, you know, because really, what is there for Dimitri Bivol? He's not, they're not making this better Biev fight. I mean, you know, better Biev does not look like he's going to fight Joe, Joe Smith as we thought that was going to happen uh, next. That's not going to happen, but, um, but that's not a, while boxing fans are interested in it, it's not like a, an enormous event or anything. So I don't know. Oh, of course, Dimitri Bivol would want, I guess that's the answer, right? Bivol of course would want to fight Canelo next if the plant fight falls through and it's a good fight. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it, but um you know, uh, there's other guys that we would rather, that I would rather see Canelo fight, and I'm sure you would also. Well, I mean, the one guy is Gennady Golovkin. Like, that, mm-hmm. that, that to me is still a marketable fight. Uh, Lance Pugmire, he reported the last couple of days that DAZN executives had reached out to Golovkin, asking if he's willing to fight Canelo in September, and Golovkin, of course, like, yes, I will. Of course I will. I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and, look, I, I, would, I would argue that's, probably still the most marketable fight out there for Canelo Alvarez. There still is, you know, outside of the boxing bubble, there are still people that remember Canelo Golovkin 1, Canelo Golovkin 2, and would have interest in Canelo Golovkin 3. And just as important, I think there is something to the idea of having a definitive winner. I mean, I I take nothing away from Canelo's win in the second fight, but it was razor thin. So if Canelo can come back and win in a, a significant way, that would... That'd be a feather in his cap, be a meaningful win for him, whether that fight is at 160 or more likely at uh, 168. But on the subject of Golovkin, Keith, what do you make of what he's done the last couple of years? Since he took on Steve Rolls in June of 2019, he has fought three times. And unless something changes in the near future, it's likely he's going to fight once in 2020 and once in 2021, the the, uh, uh, Murata fight which is tentatively penciled in for the end of the year in Japan. This was a guy, Keith, and you and I were both ringside at many of these fights, was begging for guys to fight him, pleading for the top names to get into the ring with him. Now he's got an opportunity to face some of those top names, whether it's Demetrius Andre, Jamal Charlo, David Benavidez, all these guys at 160 and 168, they want to fight Gennady Golovkin. And right now he's out there putting out tweets saying, I'm only going to fight on my terms effectively. What do you make of all that? Look, I see it, Chris, from Gennady Golovkin's perspective in this way. He came to the zone. He signed a six-fight contract with the zone under, uh, you know, the premise that he was going to fight Canelo Alvarez a third time. There were so many things that went wrong in terms of how Canelo's contract was constructed between Golden Boy and the zone that are outside of uh, Gennady Golovkin's pay grade or what, you know, none of this is his fault that the fight didn't happen. Right. So he's holding on to that. And I think he approaches everything as it relates to the zone based on that. Like, look, you guys promised me this fight. That's why I came here and I never got it. I still haven't gotten it. So I'm going to dictate my terms. And if you don't like it tough, and that is basically the way he's gone about his business in the last, uh, you know, two years or whatever, because, but at the same time, you're kind of, he's well out of his prime. It's not like he's wasting his prime years. He's wasting the twilight of his career, basically, 
by fighting Camille Zarameta for less money than he thought that he was going to make because the zone flat out refused to pay him that much money to, to fight Camille Zarameta. And understandable, it was a, it was a mandatory against a guy who never should have been in the mandatory position, which we, you know, we saw that unequivocally last December. So, uh, and now, you know, the way it was explained to me, he wanted another sort of option, soft optional defense or stay busy fight before he fights Murata. A lot of people would kind of say that Murata's the stay busy fight because he's lost twice. And while he's a big star in Japan, even a 39 going on 40 year old Gennady Golovkin should beat Murata. I mean, there's no two ways about it. It's an, it's a huge event in Tokyo, no question about it. And he does have, well, he's been elevated to the WBA super middleweight champion. When I say super middleweight champion, I don't mean 168 because <laughs> these idiots have somehow decided to call the higher championships, super championships to confuse people even more, but okay. So he's the WBA champion. So technically it's a unification fight, but Gennady Golovkin can't say it's important to me because it's a unification fight and then turn down every other unification fight that people actually want to see Demetrius Andrade flat out. They've told the zone. We are not fighting Demetrius Andrade. Stop asking, not doing it. Okay. What about Jamal Charlo? No, not interested. Well, then why is the Murata fight? Now, I get it. He's going to make a lot of money, and he's going to go to Japan and more than likely is going to knock Murata out. But you can't have it both ways, you know? And maybe he just doesn't care. Maybe he feels like he was wronged, you know, to the degree that he just doesn't give a shit anymore, right? I mean, he just, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, what's best for me and my family, for the financial future of my family. And if you don't like it, I don't care. Maybe that certainly seems to be the way he's going about it. And if that is the way he's going about it, okay, well, you know, then you can sit on the sideline and whatever, you know? Yeah. And well, I think the, the other question I would have for you is how would, how does this impact his legacy? Because look, there's a certainly a strong argument that Gennady Golovkin should be a first ballot hall of famer, um, you know, the winning the title and holding it for like a decade, you know, it was a 20 some odd title defense, whatever it was. Uh, but you look at that resume and it's thin. And yeah. I guess you could argue that he won that first Canelo fight, but didn't get the decision. But beyond that, like what's his best win? David Lemieux, yeah. Sergey Derevchenko. Like there, there's not, it's not there. And presented with an opportunity to burnish that legacy, to burnish that resume, even if it is, as you say, in the twilight of his career, he's passing. Like, he's becoming all the guys that frustrated him so badly. He's becoming Sergio Martinez. He's becoming Miguel Cotto. He's becoming Canelo Alvarez. And by the way, none of the guys we mentioned, I, I at best, to me, they're pick em kind of fights. Like, Demetrius Andrade is highly skilled. There's no bigger fan of Demetrius Andrade than me. But the Demetrius Andrade that fought Liam Williams, that's a beatable guy. Jamal Charlo, the guy that fought Juan Montiel, that's a beatable guy. So, like, these guys that are out there just standing with their hand up to fight Gennady Golovkin, it's not like he's going to be overmatched. Like, he'd have a legitimate, strong chance to win any one of those fights. He'd make a lot of money, he'd add to that legacy, he'd add to that resume, and still potentially get the option to fight Murata before the end of the year. And I'll tell you what, like if Gennady Golovkin were to beat either Demetrius Andrade or Jamal Charlo in August, September, 
and then beat Murata at the end of the year, he'd be on a short list for fighter of the year because of that. So I, I don't, I just don't understand. I mean, I, I do understand, but it's just frustrating having covered Golovkin for so long to see him taking this route at that stage, this stage of his career. Yeah, Chris, I'd say, you know, the most, the biggest, look, it's, it was a draw officially. I think most people believe he beat Canelo Alvarez in their first fight. I he did, and to be clear, Keith, to be clear, we're not talking about the Adelaide Bird scorecard. We're talking about that other scorecard that had like the seventh round or whatever scored yeah, yeah. for, like the Adelaide Bird scorecard was ridiculous, but that seventh round scored correctly uh, gives Gennady the win regardless of what Adelaide Bird had on her scorecard. Right, right. So look, the bottom line is he should have won the first fight. Canelo edged him out in the second fight. I mean, I think most people feel, if, look, if you're objective and you're looking at it objectively, he won the second fight. Okay, so it's one apiece. The most memorable fight of his career, and I don't mean from a commercial standpoint or legacy standpoint or anything, the most memorable fight of his career was the Derevianchenko fight because it was an absolute war. But we've discussed this on the podcast before. He might have lost that fight. You know, he he won, but you, you I believe, had him Derevianchenko winning. There were other people that had Derevianchenko winning. It was a great fight, certainly warranted a rematch. But that's another example of, hey, look. You just had a fight of the year against Sergey Derevianchenko. How about you guys run it back? He had no interest in that either. So didn't want that, doesn't want Andre, doesn't want Charlo. Why are you boxing? I mean, you know, I, I get that he wants to wait for the third Canelo fight, and, and that makes some sense from a financial standpoint. It definitely does. And, you know, he, again, feels like he was wronged by zone and to some degree Canelo and Golden Boy and everyone that was involved in that. But you can't just harp on that for the rest of your career if you're going to continue fighting until you're 41, 42, 43 years old. So I don't know what he's doing exactly. He's not, you know, he's not certainly not helping or he's not enhancing his legacy by approaching it this way. But again, just might not care. He just might not care because this is a, ultimately it's about money. It's about securing the financial future of your family. And maybe he's looking for the least amount of risk for the most amount of money. And if that's a problem for people, then either don't watch or criticize me or whatever, and he just might not care about it. Doesn't seem like he does. And that tweet he put out is kind of evidence of that, where he says he's going to fight for me and fight for my fans, which implies he's not fighting for the critics that are out there saying, get back in the ring, fight one of these top guys. So see how it plays out. But that's, uh, again, I think there's a very real possibility we only see Gennady Golovkin once in uh, 2021, which would be pretty disappointing. All right, let's talk about where you are. Down in Texas, Jermel Charlo, Brian Castaño. Just like you, Keith, I love this fight. I think it's going to be all action, largely because Castaño doesn't really know anything else. I mean, I called this fight against Patrick Teixeira. Now, Teixeira is not Charlo, but he took the fight to Teixeira from start to finish and beat him badly. Just beat him up uh, physically, beat him up on the scorecards. Castaño is a very good fighter. I thought he got a raw deal in that Eris Landy Lara fight a couple of years ago. Jamel Charlo, I don't want to say he's been dismissive of Castaño, but all the things he said is like, I've seen this before. I've seen this before. And I, I talked to him earlier in the week, and he's coming up later in the show, and I asked him, like, where have you seen this before? Because I look at it up and down his resume, and I don't see a Castaño-like fighter that's on it. Maybe it would have been Erickson Lubin, but that fight only lasted one round. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know where he has seen the kind of pressure that Brian Castaño brings, which is not unique pressure, but you only see it in, in a finite number of fighters. So what do you make of this fight, and what do you make of the, the level of confidence that Jermel Charlo has going into it? 
I don't think that Jamel Charlo is overlooking Brian Castaño because because I don't think you get to the level Charlo is at. And unlike his brother, who has understandably drawn some criticism for his level of opposition, other than Derevianchenko in the middleweight division, um, Jermel Charlo has embraced every challenge that you possibly could in this division. Now, some of the fighters that people wanted to see him fight got knocked off. Jared Hurd, then Julian Williams. Some people wanted to see those fights, but those guys lost their titles. So then he fought Jason Rosario and he exposed Rosario to some extent in that fight and knocked him out. So he's taken all of the fights at the top level in the 154 pound division. Now it's not the best division in boxing. It's not the welterweight division. It's not the lightweight division. So look, there's some criticism, some warranted criticism there for the level of uh, top, top fighters in the 154 pound division, but he is the elite fighter in that division until proven otherwise now. And he wanted this fight against Brian Castaño. I agree with you, Chris, in that there's probably not a fighter stylistically that he has fought that mirrors Castaño because it's pretty unique the way he just kind of bowls forward and comes. But I'll tell you what, if he puts his head down and comes forward against Jamel Charlo like that, he's going to get knocked out. And I think Brian Castaño is more than smart enough and his people are more than smart enough to know that, that he has to somehow penetrate that his manager used the word minefield when I spoke to him earlier at the press conference. He said, look, that, that little bit of space where he goes from the medium distance to right in Charlo's chest, he's got to be careful about how he navigates that space to get there because you can't come in with your head down and expect to come out of that, you know, not flat on your back and knocked unconscious because Charlo, despite his knockout ratio, not being maybe what you would, you would expect of a, of a huge puncher, is a huge puncher because he has mm-hmm. people cold and some guys who look, maybe Erickson Lubin wasn't ready as it turns out for that fight at that point of his career. He was 22 years old when he was the mandatory challenger, but he knocked him out with one punch. You know, not that Charles Hatley is, 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 uh, you know, an elite level fighter, but knocked him silly. The guy can punch. I mean, and he knocked out Jason Rosario with a body shot that left him convulsing on the canvas. The guy can punch, obviously. Um, a better boxer maybe than he's given credit for being. Uh, so I guess the short answer to your main question is the overlooking him. I don't think that he is, um, but Brian Castaño is pretty good. I mean, he's, you know, Charlo did say to me earlier, I was, you know, walking with him after the press conference was over today. And he did say to me that he had, that he feels he has fought better fighters than, um, than Castaño. And when I asked him to identify who was better he just said, you, he kind of said something like, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something like, uh, you know, you've seen my fights or whatever. So I, I, I guess maybe he considers Rosario better than Castaño. I don't, Castaño hasn't lost and, and he's fought, I, I, having covered that fight ringside, from what I remember, I thought Castaño deserved to beat Erislandi Lara back at Barclay Center a couple of years ago. Um, that's the most identifiable name on his resume. Uh, beat Teixeira very easily. I don't think a ton of Teixeira, more title holder than a you know, legitimate champion, but, but he did beat mm-hmm. convincingly to, to win the WBO title. And the, the guy that I think maybe American boxing fans aren't as familiar with that's on his resume that's very good is Michael Soro. And he went to France and he beat Michael Soro in France by split decision, which probably means that, you know, that he deserved a wide unanimous decision. Uh, and he didn't get paid for that fight, he was supposed to fight Soro again, and it turned into this whole crazy thing. He was declared as mandatory again. 
He refused to go to France because he was paid in installments. I mean, that's a thing. You get paid in installments in boxing. <laughs> it took almost a year for him to get paid for that first fight. So he didn't want to fight Soro again and wound up getting stripped of the WBO title. My point is, Brian Castaño has more than earned his place in this fight. He's dealt with a lot of the political bullshit in boxing to get to this point. So good for him and his family for, for getting this payday. Is he good enough to beat Jermel Charlo? We're going to find out in a couple of days. My, my instinct is probably not, but it's a very, very interesting fight. And I'm looking forward to seeing it on Saturday night. Yeah, underestimate Jermel Charlo's power at your own risk. He's one of those rare fighters that his power seems to be growing as his competition has increased. I mean, whatever you think of, like you said, Erickson Lubin at that time, one punch knockout, first round. Jason Rosario, eighth round knockout. Tony Harrison, 11th round knockout. These guys are high level junior middleweights that were in that position for a reason. Jason Rosario legitimately knocked out Julian Williams to win those two titles. And Jamel Charlo legitimately knocked out uh, Jason Rosario to take them off him. So his power is legit. And I agree with you. I, I don't think you can have the same type of strategy that you had against Patrick Teixeira. Teixeira is a solid puncher, but he's not a puncher on the level of Jermel Charlo. And if you come in too haphazardly, you're going to get caught with something big and you are not going to get up from it if you're Brian Castaño. On the flip side, if you discover a strategy that works, like pressure can work. I mean, it's not apples to apples here, Keith, but I mean, I watched William Zapata just beat the daylights out of Hector Tanahara just a, a week or so ago. Uh, that was all pressure all the time. Pressure works if you are in shape enough to apply it and the way guys like Zapata and Castaño and others have done it in their respective careers. But let me ask you one other thing about Charlo. I've got him inside my top 10 pound for pound at the very end of it. And largely because how I base pound for pound rankings is mostly based on accomplishment. I do believe accomplishment matters, not how a guy looks against inferior fighter, fighters. And Rosario was a champion. Harrison uh, was a champion because he took the belt, but it was a high-level uh, junior middleweight. Lubin, I think the Lubin win looks better and better you know, as Lubin's career goes along because Lubin is putting himself back in position to yeah. get a rematch. Um, a win over Castaño to become undisputed at 154. Where would you put Jermel Charlo in your rankings, or do you need to see how he wins in order to place him? Uh, for our pound-for-pound pound list on BoxingScene.com, in which we all vote, um, we have him listed as number seven. I think he belongs in the top 10 pound for pound because he's, you know, he's, you could argue that he should be undefeated, right? The, the Harrison fight with the first Harrison fight was very close, but I did think that Charlo did enough to win the fight. Regardless, there was no question about who won the second fight. He came back and knocked Tony Harrison out in the 11th round of that, of what again was a competitive fight. Uh, but he avenged his only loss. He's beaten everyone that's been put in front of him. Some pretty good fighters. I mean, again, it's not the deepest division in boxing, but that you can't penalize him for that. You know, I mean, he, this is the division in which he's operated his entire career, basically. And he's the, basically the ruler of that division now. So it's hard to fault a guy for that. You know, I think he belongs. I'm not saying he belongs in the top three pound for pound, but he certainly belongs on the list because I see all these lists and it's very subjective. And Chris, it's, it's all nonsense to a certain extent, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not really quantifiable. It's about eye tests and who likes this fighter more and who likes that fighter more. But I see a lot of these lists, and Juan Francisco Estrada is on a lot of these lists. 
He lost his last fight. Roman Gonzalez, I don't care what the official result is. If you're if it's a subjective thing and you're allowed to inject your opinion into it, we all know that Chocolatito beat Juan Francisco Estrada in that last fight. Yet people have Juan Francisco Estrada on, a, on their list toward the back end, you know, 10, 9, 8, or whatever. I, I defy anyone to tell me that Juan Francisco Estrada, after losing a fight to a guy who was thought to be shot several years ago, deserves to be on that list more than Jamal, Jamel Charlo. I just don't see it. So I, I don't know what argument you could make to, to state that, but how isn't Chocolatito on the list? He won the fight. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. and, and, and look, again, it's all kind of hocus pocus. I mean, there are people just kind of, you know, they, it turns out who, you, there are people who sit there and tell you Terrence Crawford should be, shouldn't even be on it because he hasn't fought any, that, that's, come on, stop it. You know, I mean, it, if you hate Terrence Crawford because you don't, he has, he has an abrasive personality or whatever, don't sit here and tell me he's not one of the top 10 fighters in the world. That, that's, that's ridiculous, you know, so, but I think Charlo belongs on the list. I think he's earned that. Um, you know, Castaño's not on anyone's list, so I don't know that, but, but that would be another very good fighter that he's beaten. If, you know, we wake up here Sunday morning and look back at his, at a very good win for him on Saturday night, I think it'd be hard to keep him off any legitimate list. You, you would have to, because you can't keep the undisputed champion at a legitimate weight class off your pound for pound list. Just can't happen. Um, I, I agree. I, I, in fact, he jumped on my list after the Chocolatito Estrada fight because I thought Chocolatito won. So, you know, I moved Jamel Charlo out from the outside to the in, and I think that's a fair place for him to be in right now. Back end of the top 10, you get a win, you move a little bit further up. And for Jamel Charlo, Keith, like, you know, the good times don't have to stop coming at 154. I mean, Danny Garcia is making noise about coming up to 154. At this point, I wouldn't mind seeing an Erickson Lubin rematch. All Erickson Lubin has done since that loss is win against quality opponents. Um, the one fight I don't think we're going to see, and I asked Jamel Charlo about this and kind of affirmed my thinking, Errol Spence. They both have the same trainer. Wow. But, man, that would be a fun fight, Keith. Like, that I, – I know, I, I know it's probably more fiction now at this point because Derek James is in the middle of it. But, you know, if Errol Spence can claim, like, three pieces of the welterweight title, moves up – Faces the undisputed guy at 154. That's a mega pay-per-view fight, but yeah, unfortunately, it's probably. it's off the table as you mentioned, Chris, because Derek yeah. James trains both guys. But um, but there, I, I certainly get the sense in talking to Jamel Charlo today that he is going to stay at 154 pounds. Why wouldn't he? Uh, he wins the fight. <laughs> well, I I could see him wanting to go up to 160 for the challenges that might be there at 160 and maybe some bigger money fights. But then he's putting himself in a position where people are pitting him against his brother even more than they do now. I don't. But like, what fights? Like, what fights? Like, his brother has tried that. Is like, unless unless Jamel's going to cross the street or at least or take on an Andrade or somebody like that. I don't know. I mean, he yeah, it seems like he runs into the same problems as Jamal. Yeah. Yes, I think you're right. But I think maybe the way he's gone about his career, as opposed to his brother, maybe he would be more forceful about trying to get some of those fights and maybe more. Um, willing to go to the quote-unquote other side of the street or whatever to make some of those fights happen. But anyway, he does not seem interested in that. Uh, he seems like he wants to stay at 154 pounds. I did specifically ask him about fighting Erickson Lubin again, because if I'm him, why am I fighting this guy again? I knocked him out in the first round with one punch. Why am I being forced to fight him again? That's the way I, I now maybe he's not saying that, what I just said, 
But maybe in his mind, he's like, yeah, you're going to pay me a couple million, whatever it winds up being, $3 million to fight a guy knocked out with one punch. Yeah, sure. Let's do it again. Maybe that's, but it's not going to be received well, despite that Lubin has won. Look, the, the Rosario win was excellent. Um, you know, he's beaten Nathaniel Gallimore. You know, he's beaten some real Terrell Gaucher. I mean, he's got some real wins since that, since that fight. But I think more than anything, I think people still think that Erickson Lubin, as tough of a kid as he is, as good of a boxer as he is, as powerful as he is, does not have a good chin. And if he gets in there with Jamel Charlo again, I'm not saying he's going to get knocked out with one punch in the first round, but you would have to favor Charlo to knock him out again. So I don't know what the public's response is going to be if he's forced into that. And Lubin is now the mandatory challenger for the WBC title again. I, and I don't, if you're a network, are you paying a lot of money to like, what is the justification for a rematch? Like, you, there's no controversy. The fight obviously was not competitive. So I don't know how you would sell that fight exactly, but look, like you said, Danny Garcia is a potential opponent. Um, you know, there's some other fighters, up and coming fighters. Oh, Tim Zhu, as I know you want to discuss it. Let's let, let's get that's a perfect opportunity to get into Tim Zhu because I I am starting to really like Tim Zhu. I understand he's not fighting elite competition, but this guy's not just a name. This guy's not Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. capitalizing on the name of his father. In this case, the great Costa Zhu. Uh, Tim Zhu is skilled. Tim Zhu has power, and I'm wondering who is going to be the first big name that takes on Tim Zhu either in the U.S. or tries to go for a big paycheck over in Australia. I mean, we saw Manny Pacquiao go over there years ago and take on Jeff Horn. Didn't work out for Manny Pacquiao in part. The judges may have said something to do with that. But, I mean, there's real money to be made if you go over there and fight in Australia, at least under non-kind of COVID uh, circumstances. Uh, what, what do you think? What do you think of Tim Zhu? And what do you think the next, the, the first big fight he's going to be able to talk himself into? I mean, it's hard to know what to make of him entirely, Chris, because he has a couple of good domestic wins on his record. Obviously, he beat Jeff Horn very easily, beat Dennis Hogan. Those are good wins against domestic level fighters, but he hasn't beat. He beat them up, too. Like, he beat both those guys. Yeah, thoroughly beat up both guys who are, you know, both, well, certainly in the case of Jeff Horn, very popular fighters in Australia. Um, But he hasn't beaten anyone at the world level. But but, uh, like you said, he's not. Chavez, where he's just living off his father's name. The kid can fight a little bit. We'll, we'll see how well he actually can fight moving forward. But uh, I do remember, uh, and it caused a little bit of a controversy. That, um, they said they were going to, Zoo's people said they were going to send a $10 million offer to Jamel Charlo. And Jamel Charlo, I remember, was very adamant about the fact that they had not sent that. I think they said they were going to or something. And we actually, I didn't write the story, but we had a story on our website that kind of said something like he, like Charlo was dismissive of the $10 million offer, which is, I don't. Hey, think. Keith, Keith, a lot of stuff in the, the Charlo's email spam folder gets a lot of stuff gets caught there. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, Jamal of the 7 million, maybe the 10, maybe it's in the same folder. I don't know. Look, he, he's I'm not going down that rabbit hole, but, <laughs> uh, but, but I'll say this, you know, he said his point was, is I did not receive a $10 million offer from the zoo people. If he did, you know, like just let's say he beats Brian Castaño on Saturday and he wants to remain in the 154th pound division, it'd be pretty hard to turn down. I understand he feels like he take it right. But here's the thing. If you go to Australia and you're Jamel Charlo of $10 million is an enormous amount of money. And, you know, you can take care of your family for and he's made good money, but you can take care of your family for a very long time with a $10 million. I get it. But you're taking a risk going down there in that. Look what happened in the Manny Pacquiao-Jeff Horn fight. No one thinks Jeff Horn won that fight. 
right? No. Well, he did. Now, Pacquiao allowed Jeff Horn to get away with a lot of things, and you know, it didn't go about it in the smartest way, but he won the fight. He should, he should have won the fight, and the official result is he lost, and they didn't fight for a year and whatever. So if you're Charlo and you have all four titles, you're going to have to go to Australia to make that $10 million, or just let's say it's $9 million. It's a lot of money, right? But do you do that knowing that you have kind of feel like you have to knock this kid out to win the fight? I don't know. I, don't, you know, I, I, I would in a heartbeat. And look, you do what every major fighter does. You put a rematch clause in that contract. Mm-hmm. So if in the case something bad happens in Australia with the judges, you get a rematch in Texas and California and Las Vegas. And quite frankly, it's probably even bigger and even more money for you. I know everybody wants to maintain that glossy record as long as possible, but I mean, you think Anthony Joshua is really all that upset that he lost Andy Ruiz after what he made in the second fight? Not that it's the same level of fights, but sometimes things go wrong. It turns into, it turns into big paydays for you. Like I look at, I look at Tim zoo, but I look at Tim zoo, Keith as being, uh, again, if that $10 million offer is real, and I think we both would agree, I don't know about the $10 million, but there is real money in Australia. Like, you go there, and you can make some real money. Pacquiao did. Um, if that's real, I would find a way to jump at it because Tim Zhu, as much as I think of him, he's not ready for Jamel Charlo. Like, that would be going from D or C-level opponents to A-level, and, and not good things don't usually happen when that type of situation presents itself. Yeah, and maybe that's the way Jamel Charlo would look at it too, that he feels like Tim Zhu can't beat him, no matter, that he would go there and knock him. He hasn't said that, but maybe he feels like he'll go knock him out and it won't matter about going to the scorecards because it's not going to get to the scorecards. And hey, if, um, he has a lot of confidence in himself, as we well know, and maybe he, he would look at that as an opportunity he couldn't pass up. I mean, if it's a real, if it's a real $10 million offer, and I don't, I'm not pretending to know whether it is or it isn't, but if it's a real $10 million offer, it would be hard to turn down. I agree with that. But um, I, I don't know, you know, th- he could make a lot of money to fight other guys. I'm not saying 10 million, but maybe guys who he feels, you know, that, that he wouldn't be risking another controversial loss on his record. I, I don't know. Well, you kind of hinted at this though, Keith, like Jamel may be a little more interested in legacy than his brother is at this point. Like he's seeking out the big fights. He's not taking tune up fights necessarily when they're presented to him, which yeah. I'm sure our possibilities. Maybe he's got that kind of appetite for, you know what? Let me be a world champion. Let me go travel to Australia, you know, yeah. fight in front of, I don't know, 70,000 people in Melbourne or Sydney or wherever you're going to do a fight like that. Knock off the son of a hall of famer, then go back home and fight Danny Garcia. Then that, that fight's not going to go anywhere. I mean, there, there's a practicality to all this that I, I maybe Jermel just gets and will be more interested in going down that path. Yeah, he might. And, but the thing is, if he goes to Australia, it would be, it would, I'm sure he would like to have an event on his resume that drew mm-hmm. 70,000 people who wouldn't. Right. But if he beats Tim Zhu, that's not going to strengthen his legacy by any stretch. Tim Zhu hasn't beaten anyone and is, is unproven at the championship level. So it would be worth but Like, who cares? Like, who cares? Well, like, no, I, I get every, every fighter does the event versus the. Of course. You know, no, no, I wouldn't condemn him for doing it. I'm just saying, you know, from it's not going to enhance his legacy in terms of the uh, strength of his opponents by any stretch. But it, but again, $10 million is a lot of money. And if, if, if and that's a, Mm-hmm. If, if it's a real offer, hard to pass that up. All right. So to the Australian audience that I know is listening right now, Keith hates you. That's uh, your big takeaway from this uh, <laughs> this podcast. He will not be traveling to Australia for uh, Charlo Zoo. I would. I would love. I would. I would love to go to Australia. 
Hey, that fight gets made. We're both going to Australia. I, I do not want to do a two-week quarantine in a hotel. I'll say that. But uh, That's true. I know some people that have done that. That's not uh, – it's, it's every bit as miserable as uh, you would imagine it would be. So yeah. and this has come from someone that did a seven-day quarantine in the NBA bubble, and that was fairly miserable uh, as well. Double that up. Mm, not for me. Not for me. Uh, Keith, keep up the great work this week. Follow everything that has to do with Jamel Charlo, Brian Castaño, one of the biggest fights of the summer. That fight can be seen on Showtime. Follow Keith's stuff on his Twitter account at Boxing, of course, over at BoxingScene.com all weekend. Keith, great to catch up, man. We'll do it again soon. Same here, Chris. Take care, man. We've all had that dream. Tie game, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded. Well, on FanDuel Sportsbook, you get more than one shot to swing for the fences because FanDuel is letting you place your first bet risk-free. That's right. New users get up to 1000 bucks back in site credit if your first bet doesn't win. And it only gets better from there. Check out FanDuel's new promo live every Tuesday, $5 Dinger Tuesdays. Place a $25 wager or more on any player to hit a home run on Tuesday, and get a $5 bonus in-site credit for every home run hit in the game. Max 25 bucks. Make your MLB picks for the FanDuel Sportsbook app. Same game parlay is preferred. Any local player you would place a 25-plus home run wager on this Tuesday to opt in to the promotion? My pick, Shohei Otani. There's a reason FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. Great odds, all different betting markets, unique fun, bet types like Same Game Parlay, which is great. Their Same Game Parlay is fantastic. Always on promotions to let you get more action out of every game. And when you win, FanDuel pays your winnings in as little as 24 hours. They do. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app, sign up, promo code BOXING to get in on the action. FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code BOXING. 21 plus and present in Indiana or Jersey. First online real money wager, only for risk-free bet, refund, and bonus issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in seven days. Max bonus, 25 bucks a game. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gaming problem? Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana or 1-800-GAMBLER in Jersey. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so... 
there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jermel Charlo is here, unified 154-pound champion. On Saturday, he tries to become the first undisputed junior middleweight champion in the four-belt era. When he takes on Brian Castaño, that's a fight you can only see over at Showtime. So, Jamel, winning the Undisputed Championship, first time anyone will have won it in the four-belt era, where would that rank for you among career accomplishments? Um, I think it would be a super big accomplishment for me because, you know, my family's happy. I've accomplished a goal that, uh, you know, I watched the new movie Undisputed growing up when they was fighting in prison. So it's just like so much of that is a big thing to me. Uh, and, you know, it, it'd be a, it's a super big accomplishment, something that I would always want. Where would you put yourself in the pound-for-pound pound rankings? Uh, I don't know about the pound-for-pound pound rankings. I don't, I'm not the one to make the judgment. You are. You know, you, you got, you, I got to ask you what you would put me. Or what do you have me now? You know what I'm saying? It's like. Honestly, I I have you in the top 10 because I'm a believer that accomplishments matter when it comes to the pound-for-pound rankings. It's not just the eye test. You actually have to do it against top-level opponents. And one thing about you, especially the last few years, it's just one top-level opponent after the other that you're beating. So I would have you in the top 10. Correct, correct. I mean, if you think about it, everybody I fought has at least been one or two or somewhat in that sort. I think Harry Cota wasn't but he was a replacement opponent for Tony Harrison, fake ankle injury, and then I came back to beat him. So it's like so many different things that I've done in the sport of boxing that, you know, sometimes we don't get the recognition for or that don't get talked about, but I'm not here to strive by that. I just got to keep on trying, keep on going. So you want, to that point, Jermel, you're one of those guys that is consistently getting or taking these big fights. I mean, you're not looking for any kind of, you know, easy title defense or or whatever, you're looking for that top-level fight, which you've had, as you said, over the last couple of years. Uh, why is that? Why are you consistently chasing those big fights and not taking those tune-ups, which we know are available? Well, it has to be able to build my career, you know, build my legacy. You know, you can't build your legacy fighting guys. When they go back over there, they're going to say, yeah, I knocked out. Who? Who did you knock out? <laughs> you know, so that's why, that's why I'm always at the top level trying to fight the best and the best and win the best. Everybody had titles. Everybody that talked shit to me, I wanted to fight them. Anybody that called me out, it's just like that type of shit. You know, one of the things I, I admire about your style is that, you know, a lot of guys, their power and their knockouts come early in their career. You, 
at the championship level are able to A, knock guys out, and B, at least in recent fights, do it in the later rounds. It was the 11th round against Tony Harrison. It was the 8th round against Jason Rosario. What, the, the power that you're showing in these recent fights, I mean, how, how has your power evolved over the recent years? Man, I think I'm getting stronger the older I get, you know? So the better, the, 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 you know, I work on my strength and I work on my power throughout the whole time, even fight week. Um, I'm just a small guy, you know, got to keep the power going, you know, just my brother is much larger than me. He has power, but I feel like I'm just strong, you know, like I'm, I'm heavy handed in both hands, uh, speed in both hands. So you add these two together, you, you become ferocious. And I would think a lot of it is you're able to, to make that 154. It seems like relatively comfortably. You don't have to drain yourself to get there. At all, at all. Um, you, you mentioned something about Castagna. You said that he's what he's going to bring is nothing you haven't seen before. Uh, he's, I mean, I was at his last fight. He's a pressure fighter through 1,100 punches against Patrick Teixeira. Who have you faced that brings that type of style into the ring? Well, I mean, that's cool. That's good. I'm glad he threw that many punches. I mean, Teixeira must not have no power, you know? Mm. Like, he couldn't get that guy off of him. At least you got to sit down on your punches. And I think that's the thing about me is we, we can trade and trade. I'll take some punches and, and if he threw 1,100 punches, why the fuck he didn't knock him out? Like, you know what I mean? Is that kind of your – I mean, do you see this fight going where he's going to walk into something of yours? Uh, it could possibly happen that way. It possibly can happen that way. I don't know how this fight going to go. I can't predict the future. See it this Saturday. Mm. You know, if you win this title, you'll have accomplished about everything you can accomplish at 154 pounds. I mean, how do you see your future after this fight? I would have to sit back with my team and my family and see if what I really want to do and how much I really want to do this. Because, uh, I mean, when you get to the top, you can't do nothing but come, go, mm -hmm. come, go down. You know, they, they only make you fall and hit your head, hit rock bottom or something. I'm not trying to, I'm not interested in that no more. I'm not like I'm 31 years old. I can't keep trying to prove to the world and the world not even proving shit to me. So I don't know what I'm going to do in my career. Uh, I want to keep boxing because this is my passion. I love boxing, but maybe I could be some top tier promoter. Maybe I could be, I could come in. Ex I don't know what I'll be. You, you, I don't know yet. Like, I just want to get this fight out the way and be, be at my best. Do you look at, at kind of the problems your brother has had getting big fights at 160 as kind of a reason to stay away from that division? No, I don't, I don't want to, um, I, I, I don't, I don't look at it like that. My brother is, he's rich. He's happy. He got a big ass fat career, big, a lot of cars, nice, everything. So something is not something that they talking about doesn't matter because life is good. And that's the, that's the thing about it. You know, I don't know. Everything is, everything is great going on in his life. So if he has issues with opponents or, uh, he's a champion, you know, he might not. Everybody's trying to take, trying to be somebody else. That's the problem. You gotta be yourself, and you gotta live your life of what you gotta be. You can't. I, my brother can't go over there thinking like, "Oh, I gotta try to be like Jamel, get all the belts." So I gotta, whatever opportunity you have at that moment, you gotta just seize it. You know what? When I look at, it, there still are potentially big fights at 154. Like if you stick around that division, what's what's really interesting is. You know, Errol Spence keeps talking about moving up to 154. You two have the same trainer. How problematic for you would it be to fight Errol Spence? It would be a lot of problems. Like, it would be problematic. I wouldn't, 
it's not something that I, I see in the future. It's not something that I would want. It's not something that I even take interest in. Um, it's so many fights in 154 that we can all make happen. So me and my brother own the division together. Can't, why can't only with my top top uh top top 147 uh, stable made in Texas? It's no big deal. I'm not selfish like. What if Errol Spence is undisputed at 147 and says I'm coming to 154, and you're undisputed at 154? It's all about making the right fights, happen, bro. <laughs> I hear you, man. But that I'm sure that'll be a fight people will be talking about for a long time if that uh, ever came to be. Uh, Jermel, good luck, man. I think this fight is tremendous on Saturday, and I'm looking forward to seeing you and Castano in action, man. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Tyron Woodley is a former UFC welterweight champion. On August 29th, he will try his hand at boxing when he faces Jake Paul. That fight will take place in Cleveland, Ohio, and will be televised on pay-per-view. Tyron, you're talking to me just after the press conference for this fight. Any big takeaways for you from this event? No, not really, man. You know, um, I feel like this is a different separate from the fight. Fight is one thing, the preparation, the mentality, the confidence going in that. And the press conference is just really exuding what you feel like, whether it's real or fake. So 
for me, everything I said, I believe. Everything I say, I, I feel like it's true and authentic, and I don't have anything in my body, anything for my coaches or anything different to tell me that this is not going to happen. Um, for him, I feel like he's saying what he thinks he needs to say. I think he's trying to play the mental warfare games. I just don't play those kind of games. I don't really play games at all. And um, at the end of the day, I feel like, you know, he really, really, really wants me to buy into it and bite into the bait like everybody else has done, and I'm not doing it. What do you think of Jake Paul? To be honest, I mean, people call me every five minutes to knock him out. You got to knock him out. You got to knock him out. I feel like he's utilizing what he's done um, in the YouTube realm as an entertainer because he's an entertainer. That's entertainment. Um, to bring it over to this sport, which is also entertainment, and try to, you know, maximize so can I hate on him? I can't really hate on him. I think that, you know, as an athlete, pretty athletic, he got power in his hands. Um, I feel like as far as experience and what it takes to really be at the top, he don't know. He thinks he knows from viewing, but I've done it. I've been there. I mean, I've been around it. I'm coached by it still. And um, that's kind of what I feel about him. So I'm not really taking on all the – all the trash, all the, all the people that want me to beat them up for them. I'm going out there for myself. I'm going to get the job done. You were one of the great welterweights in UFC history, but what experience do you have in the boxing world? I've been boxing since 2008. I started with um, Eric Brown, Walker Boxing. Um, you know, so I've definitely had a boxing, probably be, I want to say 50 to, 50 to 60% of my training for a very long time. Now it's just utilizing the, the assets and the resources that I have to go out there and just put myself in a position to be a great boxer. Boxing for MMA is different than boxing for boxing. And that's kind of what I'm learning right now. It's just taking the time, being patient with myself. I don't have to learn everything overnight, but I am being diligent. I am really trying to correct things that, that I know that won't play well for me in boxing that I could get away with in MMA. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because you are – a very heavy-handed fighter. There's no doubt about that. But watching you fight, as I've gone back and looked at some of your the footage, you are you throw punches like an MMA fighter, which you should. You're in mixed martial arts at that time. You throw kind of wide uh, when you're you're fighting like that. Do you need to change, you know, fundamentally who you are as a fighter to get into this fight? No, I just threw the punches to where the target was at. Sometimes the target is not narrow. You don't throw a narrow punch at a wide target. A wide target, you throw a wide punch. So in, in MMA and the, the different obstacles that you got to deal with, the striking, the kicking, the, um, you know, the wrestling, the defense, you got to really be looking out for a lot of stuff, elbows, knees, spinning attacks. So boxing is a different stance. So it wasn't that I was throwing a punch wide. I was landing a punch in, in a place it needed to be landed in. Now this is a different sport, different stance, uh, and a different target. So I'm going I'm to throw the shots. When you see me box, I'm going to look like a pro boxer. In that sense, do you feel like you're going to be comfortable throwing jabs, setting up punches that way? Yes, sir. The um, you know, for this fight, you mentioned Eric Brown, who you started with. Who are you working with as far as boxing training for this fight? Well, I'm continuing working with Eric Brown, but I'm primarily um, in Miami, Florida, working with Pedro Diaz, um, also Floyd Mayweather and um, Gerald, which we call GT. Um, basically, putting together a dream team. Everybody does something different. One person's really for the drill, the repetition, the commitment, the, the conditioning, the schedule, and the planning. Other parts is the boxing, the chess match, the strategy, the finesse, and, you know, making people miss and making them pay. Um, and, and Eric is just old school. He knows me more than anybody. He knows what button to push. He knows if I'm slacking, if I'm, you know, um, doing well, or if I'm, you know, loafing. He knows how to talk to me. He got the respect for me. So 
he'll be pushing me at a different level too. So collectively, I think that team put together is going to be phenomenal. Pedro Diaz is is a known name in boxing circles. He's had a lot of success in his training career. What have you you taken from him? Well, basically the mindset, his, his commitment, his obsession with winning. All he talks about is win every day, win, win, <laughs> train for the win. Um, and it's a different to train to train and train to get better and train to win. So everything that we're doing is to inflict damage, hurt the opponent, make them want to give up, and to take them out. You know, you're an excellent fighter, Tyrone. I, fundamentally, I believe, though, and I've always believed, that mixed martial artists can't beat boxers in boxing and boxers can't beat mixed martial artists uh, in the octagon. And, and there's been evidence of that, of course. You know, whether it's Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather, Jake Paul recently with Ben Askren. Uh, and the reverse is true. Obviously, James Tony. I mean, I, I was there in Boston when he fought uh, Randy Couture. That was over quickly. Why is your situation going to be different? Well, you can't ever put Jake Paul in the, the same conversation as a great fighter like James Tony fighting Randy Couture, um, the natural. You can't put that in the same instance of Conor McGregor, who's a great MMA fighter fighting against Floyd Mayweather. Jake Paul was a fighter because he fought, not because of his resume, not because of his history, not because of what we known him for. We knew him for different things before he took those fights. Those more were celebrity fights. Back in the day, those would be celebrity charity fights. So for me, it's a dude that want to fight me, and I want to fight him. We're going to get it on. You hit a lot harder than Ben Askren, no doubt, but Ben went down from that first big shot that Jake landed. Now, I think Jake, while he's not a championship-level boxer by any stretch, I think he can box. I mean, what, what will you do differently, and what can you do differently than a Ben Askren could do? Move my head. <laughs> just get it out of the way? And you want to you in-depth answer, or you want to just a real shit? Move your head. That's <laughs> <laughs> all he could have did differently in that moment, not to get hit. Mm -hmm. uh, taking shots that, that a Jake Paul could throw, how confident are you that you can take those types of punches? I mean, I've been in, I've been in many wars. I've been against heavy hitters. I've been against... Um, Hall of Fame fighters, so I feel very confident. But more importantly, I'm more, more, more thinking about making them miss the punches, making them take my punches. So I'm not, I'm not sitting in the gym trying to see how many punches I can take. But is it do you, when you go into sparring in boxing, which I'm sure you've done at this point, um, is it different how it you know taking punches from a boxer than it is taking shots in the MMA octagon? You mean, you mean since I've been boxing sparring since 2008? Yeah, I mean, just, just, I mean, I guess the, you know, how it is, boxing, it's not necessarily about the power of the punch. It's like throwing the a shot you don't see coming. The sparring with the world champions, I box and spar with, they, they're not going to throw any punches any harder or any less because I'm fighting Jake Paul. When I was sparring them, at the time I was sparring them, they were boxing me like they're boxing um, their next opponent. So for me, I'm not, I'm not really worried about it. And just the last thing for you, you know, there's, there's been a lot of MMA fighters trying to, to get into boxing, understandably so. Um, do you feel like in a way you, you're representing MMA fighters, representing UFC fighters, not just yourself in a situation like this? I think I always represented MMA fighters because I was always a trailblazer. I was always the first. I was the first one with Champ Camp. I was the first one that really stepped out and did the music thing. I was the one that had been in the most films out of everybody, more than Randy, more than Ronda Rousey. You know, literally, so when you think about it, I've always been the person that went first, podcasting, television shows, commercial producing. So... I'm just an artist overall. My sport is called mixed martial what? Arts. Arts. So you can't tell me when I'm going to use what paintbrush or what canvas. So for me, this is nothing new. I've always been a person that broke the ground. I've always been the first to do it. And the first person always takes the most risk. And I'm okay with that. 
Are you as confident going into this fight as you were at championship level fights in UFC? For sure, 100%. As confident, if not more. Well, Tyron, looking forward to seeing this fight. It's already got a lot of, lot of buzz. August 29th, Showtime pay-per-view. Good luck, man, and thanks for joining me. Appreciate you, my man. All right, that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to Keith Eidek, Jermel Charlo, and Tyron Woodley for joining the show. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, review this podcast anywhere you download podcasts, and we'll see you next week. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.